Shall we pray as we come to God's word? Dear Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the way in which it speaks to us uh, thousands of years after which uh, after it was written. Thank you for the coherence that it brings. Uh, thank you for the depth uh, that it brings. Thank you for the knowledge and the understanding, uh, the encouragement, the challenge, the awe that it brings to us as we read it. We pray this morning that you would help me as I speak, uh, that you would give me uh, clarity and articulacy and faithfulness uh, to the message of your word, and that as we all think and reflect on what you say, that it would encourage uh, and challenge and equip us uh, for this week and the weeks to come in your service. Amen. Amen. Well, apologies if I look a little bit uh, worse for wear, but uh, we went down to Cardiff yesterday, got back about one o'clock in the morning, um, and it was a harrowing experience. Um, South, Africa, South Africa scored eight tries uh, to Wales' one. Uh, it was difficult. It was upsetting. But you know what? It's only a game, isn't it? It's only a game. So we don't worry, because it's only a game, and... There's always next time. Um, what we're going to look at this morning uh, are three messages, three lessons which uh, Jesus uh, brought to the disciples. Um, and in the context of it not being a game, it's the context of what he's saying is that, quite frankly, there's a war on, a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. Um, uh, there are two sides. There are no neutrals. You have to take a side. And if you take a side, and Jesus obviously is hoping that it's his side, then you're in that battle and you have to be wholehearted and uncompromising. That's the context in which Jesus is uh, teaching the disciples and through them, us. So it's serious stuff. It's serious stuff. Um, this is um, this is really important that, that we listen to this and, uh, and understand it. Now that's always true, isn't it? But it's it's very obvious, I think, um, as, as we get into this particular set of teachings, that that is the context and that is what Jesus is saying. So I thought it was worth emphasising that at the start. Um, there are three messages. Hang on, this is where I am struggling. <laughs> so, well, okay. we'll carry. See, it's just patience. Oh, it's patience, right? Let's go back here. There we are. Spoilers, spoilers. Sorry, I wasn't patient. I have been told to be patient before. <laughs> I'm not a patient person. Apologies. So, kingdom lessons, um, and there are three lessons. Um, I think that Jesus wants the disciples to learn, and through, as I said, the disciples, us. Um, one is the importance of humility. Uh, particularly when we look at, um, you know, people not like us, if you like, people not of our group. Uh, secondly, purity, how important it is uh, when we follow Jesus to follow him wholeheartedly and to cut anything out of our life that may prevent us from doing that properly. And finally, and uh, I couldn't get an alliterative three points today, but 
Um, ubiquity. So humility, purity, and ubiquity. And for those like me who struggle to know exactly what ubiquity means, uh, it means being everywhere. Okay. So um, the idea of, of getting out there. So three lessons. The importance of humility, the importance of, of purity, the importance of ubiquity, of, of getting out there, if you like, as Christians. So let's, let's look at those um, three messages uh, today. First of all, uh, humility. Let's, let's just read those first few verses again. Um, and notice what I've highlighted. Jesus said to, sorry, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. You can hear the shock and horror in his voice, can't you? We saw, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. How dare they? And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Uh, and notice that the highlighted bits, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. What, is, what do you think the, the disciples' motivation is here? Why, why are they so grumpy about this? Okay. Well, there's a bit of context that we need to understand, I think. Um, they're, they're making two mistakes, and, uh, and, and a little bit of context, I think, will help us understand that. The first mistake I think they're making is they're concerned, and in fact continuing to be concerned, about status rather than service. They've got, uh, they've got themselves um, caught up in being worried about their status as Jesus' followers. What status do they have? Surely they've got a special status, they think, to themselves. In fact, not long before, um, <clears throat> they, uh, as when the, Robert said to us, they're, they're now in Capernaum. When they arrived in Capernaum, this is what happened. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? He always asked these questions, didn't he, Jesus, to, to find out uh, to get people to, to confess what, what was going on. What were you discussing on the way? He said, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So the disciples are concerned about status. They've been, they've been discussing previously who might amongst the disciples be the greatest. Well, Jesus said that to you. Oh, but I noticed he said that to you. Who could be the greatest? They're obsessed with status rather than service. And service is, of course, the key. Now, in this particular case, it looks as if, to me, they're worried about status again. They are worried about their collective special status. How dare somebody not of our special group, the group next to Jesus, the group that's close to Jesus, how dare somebody else do this in Jesus' name? I think they feel that their special status is being undermined. But I think there's something else going on as well. Because also just previously, if you remember, uh, they failed they failed to, to um, exorcise a demon. 
This this is what he says just a few verses previous. And someone from the crowd answered him, answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And this person is able. So imagine how they feel. So not only have they become obsessed, I think, at this particular point, um, with their status in, in Jesus' eyes, their special status, but they've, they've now, they've, some, this has really, really got them uh, annoyed and jealous because they think they've got special status and this other person has just done what they could not do. So I think they're obsessed, as I said, with status rather than service, and I think, quite frankly, they're downright jealous. And they're grumpy. And they don't like it. And they come to Jesus. And notice that they asked John to come to Jesus. So John said to them, I think they've been discussing this, and I think probably, they, they said, look, John, we think he likes you quite a lot. Could you go and tell him about this? You know, he might be a bit more sympathetic if you go. So I think they've been talking about it, and they've said to John, you go and speak to Jesus, and he might be sympathetic. Jesus calls them out, doesn't he? Jesus calls them out. Interestingly, something similar to this happens in the Old Testament. Um, So let me read this to you from Numbers chapter 11. Uh, This is after... Uh, Moses has established um, the prophets um, in, in Israel. It says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered as prophets, but they'd not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, shock horror, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. They weren't supposed to prophesy in the camp, they were supposed to go out and prophesy the tent. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his, his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them! But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? So again, Joshua, it looks to me as if he's making the same mistake. He's saying, hang on, you know, don't let these people do this. Moses, in effect, I think, says to to Joshua, are you worried about the right thing here? Are you really worried about what we're doing, about God's work? I suspect you might not be. The disciples have got their attitudes all wrong. They they present it as if they're worried on Jesus' behalf, but they're not. They're worried about their own status, and they're jealous. It happens today, doesn't it? It happens today. We we struggle sometimes with people not of our group. We struggle sometimes to accept that people who are not doing things exactly like us might be um, might be on Jesus' side. I think we do. Here's an interesting little excerpt uh, from uh, my mum's memoirs. Uh, my mum, as you know, has moved into Wolfside Care Home uh, opposite. Um, 
she would struggle to write at the moment, but uh, it's her 19th birthday in a couple of months, and we've said that we'll produce, we'll take her memoirs, which she wrote a few years ago, and make them into a book. So I've been reading them and editing them, and Rhiannon is going to design them up. So um, we'll, we're going to do this for her birthday. But there's, there's interesting stuff. I mean, obviously I'm particularly interested because she's my mum. But I think there's interesting stuff in this book. And here's something she wrote. Horace. Now, Horace is her cousin. She wrote this. Horace. <coughs> Excuse me. His parents and brothers and sisters were all members of the exclusive brethren. This denomination gradually became cut off from mainstream Christianity. An example of this separation can be shown in their attitude to entertaining. At one time, my mother and I often used to have tea with Lizzie, that's Horace's mum, and her husband Ira. With six children and a wife to support, he had to be... Sorry, some of this is not terribly relevant, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to read it anyway, sorry. Um, uh, so, sorry, with, with six children and a wife to support, he had to be careful with money. <coughs> tea would consist of bread and butter and Uncle Ira's jam, golden syrup. <laughs> then a directive came from the exclusive Brethren's headquarters in America. That's as my mum saw it. To forbid exclusive brothers and sisters from sharing food or drink with anyone outside the church. They could not sit down at table with an unbeliever. Unbelievers were any who did not belong to the exclusive brethren. This not only stopped our teas together, but it had wider implications, ruining any hope young members had of going, for example, to college. And then she goes on to say that when Uncle Ira died, all the others left, all the rest of the family left the exclusive brethren and joined other churches. Um, isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Um, and the disciples are falling into that trap. They're falling into the trap of immediately dismissing anybody from outside their little group. They can't possibly be following Jesus. That's their attitude. Um, and Jesus calls the disciples out. As I've said, there's a spiritual war on, and it's a war, yes, in which there are no neutrals. People are either for Jesus or against. So in that sense, they've got that bit right. But they're drawing the line in the wrong place. Their petty concerns about status and about what they can and can't do are at odds with the urgency and the reality of the situation. Now, Jesus does make this point about um, there being no neutrals elsewhere. We know in Matthew um, chapter 12, verse uh, 30, he says, whoever is not for us is against us. Now, at first sight, that looks a, little, that looks a bit of a contradiction, because in this case, he says, um, where is it? Uh, for the one who is not against us is for us. Whereas in Matthew, he says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, <clears throat> there's something in common in both cases, which is, there's a war on, there are no neutrals. That's the same in both cases. And that's, the, that's a big message. But the context is different. And we'll return to that a little bit in a moment. But let's just follow this, there is no middle ground when it comes to our attitude to Jesus, which is a key point uh, that he's making. That choice determines, the choice of whether we follow Jesus or not is so fundamental. It determines how God sees us, whether we're in his kingdom or not, and what our eternal destiny will be. And Jesus goes on um, in the next bit of his teaching, 
uh, verse 43, um, to say that uh, for those who don't follow him, the ultimate uh, destination is Gehenna, unquenchable fire. In this case, though, Jesus is emphasising, yes, there is there are no neutrals, but in this case, this particular person is, if you like, in the kingdom. He is following me. Because he's doing a mighty work in my name, and I know he's following me. And your attitude, your attitude is just to assume that he is not, because he's not part of our small group. And that is wrong. The exorcist is using Jesus' name genuinely to do good and is in a right relationship with Jesus. It's that which matters, not his qualifications or group membership. The disciples need to have a bigger view of Jesus' kingdom, of the church as it will be. They need to get over petty concerns, bruised egos. There's a war on. There's a war on. And you can't let your own small concerns um, get in the way. We do have to be discerning and discriminating as Christians because there will be false prophets. There will be false teachers. Um, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it is the case that we have to be discriminatory, we have to be discerning, but we have to be clear that our attitude is right before we be before we come to that kind of discernment and discrimination. And the problem here is that the disciples' attitude was completely wrong. Our default position must be to be gracious and humble and seek out those that we can work with for Jesus' sake, who may not be of our small group. If people are for Jesus, we must not be against them. So let's examine our motives and let's, let's make sure that when we uh, look uh, to judge other people and make judgments about them, that we're doing so with the right motives and the right information. So first of all, be humble and accept that people not like us and not of our group can also be following Jesus and doing his work. It might be big work, it might be small work, giving you a cup of water. If they are working for Jesus, then they're, they're in the kingdom and they're citizens of heaven with us. The next lesson uh, that Jesus wants us to learn is about purity. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We'll look at that particular verse uh, first, but this is all about, this is all about uh, purity in my view. When we were in Cardiff yesterday, um, there was uh, it, 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 there was a ta- tale of two streets. So we were walking down St Mary Street, which is where all the a lot of the bars and the pubs are, and that was full of uh, Wales and South Africa supporters enjoying the sunshine before the game. And then the next street over, which is called the Hayes, there was uh, a group of Ukrainians talking about the war in Ukraine. And quite frankly, nobody was listening. There's a war on in Ukraine, and people didn't have the time to listen. Now, I'm not judging those people because there there was all sorts of things going on, but 
Do we fall into that trap of forgetting how serious uh, following Jesus is? There is a war on. There is a war on. And wars require desperate, radical measures. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. First of all, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones um, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, little ones in this context does not probably mean children. It probably means uh, other disciples. And what Jesus is saying is, if you cause other followers of me to sin, if you if you do something which puts something a, a problem in the way, a challenge in the way, it means they can't follow me as well, then it would be better um, for him, if a great, if for you indeed, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The Roman Romans had all sorts of ways of killing people, as you probably are aware. And they, they had different ways of killing people for different crimes. Throwing somebody into the sea with a great stone around their neck was, the, was for the crime of killing a member of your family, parasite. It was specifically reserved for a situation where you had, you had murdered somebody in your family. Now I think Jesus chooses this example very, very specifically. He's saying, if you stop, prevent one of these other followers of me, perhaps, you know, somebody struggling in the faith a little bit, whatever. If you, if you, if you put impediments in their way, whatever they may be, if you don't look after them, then in a sense, because they are in our family, because they are, uh, they are part of the Christian family. Then, in a sense, it's a kind of murder, and this is the punishment that would be appropriate. I think what he's saying by using that particular example is he's saying these people are in your family, and to uh, to hurt them, to prevent them following me, that is that is in a sense equivalent, in some sense, of the murder of a member of the family. I think that's what he's saying. It's that serious. It's that serious. And then he goes on. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And then he talks about feet and about eyes. It's the same, just as it is dreadful to put something in the way of somebody else following Jesus effectively, it's the same applied to yourself. If, you, if something in your life is stopping you, hindering you from following Jesus, you have to be radical. It's that serious. You have to get rid of it. This is not literal. It doesn't literally mean, you know, um, get rid of an eye, get rid of an arm. But what it does mean is it's radical and urgent. If there are things in your life could be following Wales football team or rugby team. After yesterday, certainly not the rugby team. Probably not the football team after the recent results either. But if there is something, seriously, if there's something in your life, it could be actually, it could be sport for some people. If there's something in your life that is getting in the way, I mean, we could be, we don't know what the score is, do we? But we could be watching the Lionesses at the moment 
Um, we've got it recorded, so please don't. If anybody, <laughs> if anybody finds out on the score, don't let me know. Don't let us know. But um, seriously, it could be sport. Whatever it is, it could be you. Could be your job. Your job becomes so <coughs> important to you. Your family becomes so important to you that it gets in the way of following Jesus. You've got to sort it out. It's that serious. You cannot compromise. These these injunctions show the seriousness of being, um, if you like, a soldier in Jesus' army. We have to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. So ask some tough questions today about what you need to do to get back to following Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 49, um, which uh, we can't quite read, um, Therefore, everyone will be salted with fire. Just a word about that verse. It, it's actually a summary verse, I think. Um, and let me read you something from Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13. Levit- Leviticus 2 chapter 13, uh, verse, sorry, chapter 2 verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So in the Old Testament, when they offered uh, a a grain offering to to God, they would put salt in it. And the salt was uh, a symbol of the covenant that they had made with God. So my best guess as to what this verse means is when it says for everyone will be salted with fire, what it means is that your offering, your salt, your offering of salt to God, the offering of your life to God, must be offered with fire. That is to say, it must be purified. Because fire is used as a uh, as a metaphor for purification. So I think what Jesus is saying, it's a summary verse. He's saying, whatever you offer, and you offer your whole life to Jesus, it must be pure. It must be purified. If there are things that are um, that are getting into it, that are making it dirty, that are making it impure, get rid of them. Because your whole life, everything that you give to Jesus must be pure. And then the final verse where he carries on the idea of saltiness. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's a sort of odd idea, isn't it? Salt losing its saltiness. But apparently... Um, I read in the uh, in the New Testament times, uh, salt was um, often uh, mixed with uh, with some other kind of uh, rock or uh, ground up uh, substance. So that in fact it was it was not pure salt, but it was salt mixed with something else. And of course, um, if you got wet or in a circumstance like that, the salt could disappear, and you'd just be left with the other rock. And you'd think it was salt, but it wasn't. So this idea of salt losing its saltiness would probably have been an idea that they would have known from their everyday experience. So salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? We are, as we know, salt in the world. As you know, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we should be salt and light. Salt uh, to, uh, to to stop the world rotting and going off 
and light to point to Jesus. So we should be salt and light in the world. But how can we be salt and light if the salt has lost its saltiness? And that follows directly on from what he's been saying about humility and purity. If we are, if we lose our humility, if we lose our purity, we've lost our saltiness. And nobody will see any difference in us. We must be at peace with one another. We must be humble towards each other. We must be pure in the way that we live. By this will they know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. But also in the way that you live, for me, wholeheartedly, with heart, soul and mind. So there's huge challenges here. Huge challenges about humility, about purity, and about um, how we then, if we have humility and purity, go out into the world to show people that we are different. So humility, purity, ubiquity, we need all three if we're going to be effective followers, disciples, and evangelists of and for Christ. Should we pray? Lord, help us this morning to go out um, determined to be more humble, determined to be purer, determined to be better witnesses of you. Help us to uh, be discerning, but also gracious in the way that we work with other people who claim to follow you. Help us to be radical where we need to be radical in our following of you. And help us to be willing to go out into your world to show people that purity, that humility, and win them for you. Amen. Amen.